Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Fred Edwards. Fred is the president and COO of Goulston Technologies. Fred and I initially met when we served together on the Union County Education Foundation Board. That board specifically exists to make sure that students and teachers have all of the resources and supplies and funding that they need to be successful. Students, as they learn and grow in their lives and careers, and teachers having the resources they need to feel fulfilled in their work and give students all the resources they need to be successful. And as I began working with Fred in the foundation, the power of his leadership, the power of his perspective and the depth and breadth of his experience quickly became very apparent to me. And the more time I spent being involved in the community and working with different organizations, the more I learned how Fred's fingerprints are all over many of the leading community organizations where we live. Fred and I began to cultivate a relationship and we worked a little bit together with his organization. And that's when I began to learn how Goulston Technologies is owned by a Japanese parent company. And it's where I began to wrap my my arms around the technical specificity of what they do, the challenges that their sales teams face, the number of countries that they have to visit, operate, sell into, and have manufacturing locations in. And the more I spoke with Fred and his team, the more I learned of his leadership and the different situations he's led his team through and how he's continued to develop his team and how he's been developing them for quite some time. And I was so excited when Fred agreed to join this conversation today in order to share with us his experience, his perspective, the techniques he uses, the lessons he learns, not just to be successful as the president and COO of his organization, not just in the international conversations and negotiations and business development conversations he has, but also in his grassroots community service work as well, because they are the same principles and the same techniques that he applies across the board. He really is a great human being who's had a significant impact in his business and his community. And I'm really excited to share even a small portion of his story with everybody today. I'm excited for the takeaway from these conversations. So before we start, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors. First, of course, we have Humantel. Please visit humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for a 25% discount on all of their online training. That is all of their training to identify how to accurately interpret facial expressions, changes in facial expressions, and how those correlate to likely shifts in emotion and how we can use that to make better decisions in all of our conversations to understand what people are thinking and feeling, protect ourselves potentially in dangerous situations, and of course, build better rapport with people and help work our way towards achieving commitment to any number of agreements. Also, please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com. Check them out for their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence resources, from webinars to videos to podcasts to articles to books. The list goes on. Everything you would want to learn and see about emotional intelligence, please check them out at Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And of course, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. That's where you can learn about all of their webinars, all of their in-person training experience, their back catalog of education events, get connected with the community, find out what jobs might be opening, connect with other investigators to get their experiences, their insight, their advice. Of course, explore the Certified Friends 
forensic interviewer designation and see if that is right for you. But that is an organization that is solely dedicated to continuing to increase the standards and further the industry of interview and interrogation. Please check them out and experience the great resources that they have available for you as well. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Fred Edwards. Good morning, Fred. It is so great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Michael. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to chat with you for a little while and talk about some of the things that have been on your mind. Well, I would love to get into a lot of things that have been on your mind and your experiences. So for a bit of background, we know each other previously. We're mm -hmm. actually not too very far apart from each other right now as we record this. Uh, but you and I initially met through some more community service type activities. We served on a board together. I believe right. you maybe regrettably were the chair that recruited me to join the board. I don't know how you felt no about, <laughs> about that in the long run. Uh, but we've also worked a little bit together on the, on the business side as well. Mm -hmm. And you are somebody whose perspective and experience I have truly come to to value in the years that we have known each other, both on the community service side and in the business side. So really for me, I'm grateful that you took the time today and I'm excited to share this conversation. Well, thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, you know, we have known each other for a few years now, both professionally and uh, through the community. And, you know, I have a passion for both of those right now. So um, yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. And we're going to touch on both. But before we do, I know a little bit about your journey and, and certainly what you do mm -hmm. now. But for the listeners, it would be great if you don't mind just taking a couple of minutes and letting everybody know what your current role is, CEO of Goldstone Technologies, and what mm -hmm. led you to the role that you currently hold. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. I was born in Mount Airy, North Carolina. <laughs> We're not going to go back that far. Um I joined Goulston in 1988 as a uh, technician in the research and development group. And so I was working with testing of how our products are used. Spent uh, almost two years doing that before I moved into sales. And I discovered serendipitously that I absolutely love sales. So I am a salesman. Even now in this role, at the end of the day, I'm a salesman. Um, I spent about 10 years in the sales role. I actually left Goulston for a year, um, worked for another chemical company. They had some cultural shifts and some changes in management and, and wanted to make some changes in the way that they conduct business, both internally and externally. And they asked me to come back as the sales manager. And I did, that was 1988. And then I spent uh, the next uh, 10 years in sales management, everything from domestic sales, then added the international component, um, managing a very diverse sales team, as well as agents throughout the world, then moved into executive leadership and joined the board, uh, then in 2012 became president and chief operating officer, and that's kind of where I've been ever since. Well, that's a heck of a journey all the way up. And we've talked about this a little bit on the side before, mm -hmm. but that's a very interesting shift to go from the technical side to the sales side. We it see is. it a lot where technicians or technical experts get pushed into sales, especially in technology-related organizations or process manufacturing-related organizations. 
but I don't know how many of them truly love it. I feel like some of them accept it or embrace it or just deal with it, but I don't know how many of them truly love it. So what do you think led you from being more of that technician shifting and really loving the sales side? Well, I think it's really the opposite. I think I was a salesman to begin with and kind of forced my uh, square peg into that round hole with being a technical person just because I love science and I have a kind of a curious mind and a curious background. And so um, I thought the sciences came easy to me, whether it's biology or chemistry or physics and things like that. And so I said, that's kind of where I want to work, not knowing really um, where I would end up or whether it's the industry or position or anything like that. So I was just kind of testing the water. Uh, I enjoyed my time in the laboratory. I enjoyed formulation and I enjoyed putting things together and and testing them and seeing how they really work and if we could change this, what impact does it have, uh, those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, it's it's being with people. And I love talking with people, being with people. I love the challenge of figuring out a problem. So what I got to do when I moved into sales was really take that technical background and technical expertise and inquire within my customer base about the problems and issues that they are having and come up with a solution. So we're very close with our technical team. In fact, many of the folks that are now in leadership positions here at Goulston started out in the laboratory. Uh, Many of our salespeople, our CFO started out as a formulation chemist and he's now our CFO. that's true throughout our organization. Our uh, plant manager, he started out in the same group that I was in in R&D and moved into maintenance and engineering and then into production. And so for Goulston, that's kind of where we lay the foundation. If you understand the chemistry and you understand the function of the products that we do, then we can teach you those other skills to do the job and be successful. That makes sense. What did you, I guess, I'm going to try to separate this into two questions. I'm supposed to ask questions for sure. a living, so I probably shouldn't ask terrible questions this early into our conversation. Um, what When you talk about understanding the chemistry, mm-hmm. how did that set you up to develop rapport and connect quicker with the customers you were interacting with? Uh, great question. Uh, our The way we do sales here is a very technical sale, and the the customers, the clients that we call on are in technical positions within our customer. Now, of course, we also work with purchasing and supply chain and even the executives at many of our clients, but the ground level starting to get into the plants, figure out what's going on, you're dealing with usually the technical manager or the technicians or things like that. And they have a problem that needs to be solved. And so you got to go in, you've got to fact find, you've got to ask the right questions. And if you don't have that chemistry background, but more importantly, understanding how the chemistries that we manufacture and sell impact the performance of the fibers, fabrics, and yarns that our customers produce, if we don't understand that, we're not going to be able to make the connection. You're not going to get the sale. So having that technical background allowed me to go in and ask the right questions. You know, I'm going to give you a a real tech geeky example here, Michael. Please. Uh, (laughs) I go into a customer. He goes, oh, I have a static problem. 
He says, I've got fly everywhere, you know, and that means that the, the yarns and fibers are shedding and it's making a, a fuzzy mess everywhere, that sort of thing goes. So it's static buildup. So we go in and I ask him questions like, are you having arcing? You know, when, when someone like this, like rubbing your feet across the carpet, you go to touch someone, bow. Uh, same sort of thing happens in fibers and fabrics and that sort of thing. Are you having this? So we went through the investigation, asking all those questions about, do you have this, do you have this, do you have this? And he didn't have any of those things. I said, you don't have a static problem. Yes, I have a static problem. I've been a technician for 10 years. I have a static problem. I said, no, let's explore that a little bit. I said, I want to give you what you think you want, and we're going to evaluate that and see if it solves the problem. It was a real quick, simple test, gave him what he wanted, went over to the plant. We ran one quick trial. It didn't, didn't solve the problem. I said, now, I think you have a cohesion problem. So now we're going to try this chemistry. We put that in there, came out beautifully, solved the problem. He's like, okay, you can have my business. <laughs> and so, you know, again, it's kind of helping the customer find out what they don't know. Mm -hmm. His entire experience had been around static. Every time he had a problem, it was a static problem. He had never experienced this problem before. And I had to kind of dig into it, find out what was the root cause and then give them a solution. And that's what we did. That's a great example. And that wasn't nearly as geeky as I was hoping for. <laughs> so maybe we can come up with another one as we go. But no, that, that's a great example. You know, from a customer's perspective, how many times do we go to what we know? Diagnosis bias. This is what it's been before. It must be what it is again. Give me the quick solution. Let's move on when it's not. Absolutely. Which gives you the perfect opportunity to come in and provide that education. And I'm imagining in that scenario, asking the right question, even the right word choice, like choosing the oh, right absolutely. words to describe the problem caused somebody else to think Fred must know what he's talking about because how else would he know to use that word in this context? So I imagine those little things really went a long way to build the, the connection with customers. Oh, absolutely. Not only that, but making sure that I wasn't being you know, an arrogant jerk and saying, no, you're wrong and I'm right, but helping to lead him to that decision kind of on his own without making him feel like, well, I feel stupid. You know, you, you don't want to do that. You want to protect that relationship. And so it was, okay, I'm, we're going to try We're going to try your way. Let's see what happens. You know, and then we start that investigation. Well, it's not that. Well, could it be this? And are you experiencing, you know, the techie term in, in the spinning industry is fly. Are you experiencing fly? Do you have a lot of waste? Do you have these things? And you start asking these things and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I got that from them. Oh, yes, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. Oh, well, it could be that. Yes, there we go. Now I have a solution for you. Let's try this chemistry. And the, the humility and the situational awareness to try his way first. And for me, hearing you say, I don't want to make them feel stupid, I wish we could just have that on loop for everybody in leadership and sales to listen to every day, because I feel like there are so many times where we accidentally make somebody feel stupid. We're not trying to do that, oh, yes. but just on how we ask a question or how we set somebody up or even who we ask it in front of or what point in the process we ask it we end up creating that dynamic where we're causing somebody to lose face and instead of save face. And that's one of the things that really interested me when you talked about going from the technical side to the sales side. 
And we've had these conversations a little bit before Mm -hmm. when the technical expert needs to have conversations with somebody else. That can be particularly challenging. Recency bias for me, I was teaching in Georgia two weeks ago and I needed to get my computer logged into their system because we were going to use WebEx in order to get remote people in. And so (laughs) their IT guy standing next to me and he's telling me what to do. And as I'm typing on my computer, I can literally see his hand on the desk twitching. So I step back and I'm like, would you like to do this? And he says, may I'm like, yes, please. He audibly exhaled when I said that to him. (laughs) And so I laughed and I said, it can probably be pretty frustrating watching somebody take 10 minutes to do what you can do in 10 seconds. He looks at me and says, that's my day every day, man. And just (laughs) gets back into it. So whether it's accidentally talking over somebody or using jargon or words they don't understand or accidentally talking too fast or getting into that, I know what you know conversation, which we're trying to build rapport, but we can be perceived as a little bit of one-upsmanship. I'd love to kind of revisit this conversation from a different angle and ask, you were a people person. So you loved applying the technical side to the people side as you reflect not only on your journey, but on your team and teams uh, over the years. What were some of the challenges you saw technical experts have to work through as they were trying to develop relationships with other human beings? Oh, my God. Sometimes it was just being comfortable sitting across from someone, okay? Uh, It's hard. And all of those things you just described, I have had to become cognizant of in myself. As, you know, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ESTJ. I'm a strong E. I, I like people. I like to be in the conversation. But I have to consciously think, don't talk right now. Just just listen, be quiet. And, you know, with what you, we talked about in the past and some of the training you provided to our sales team on active listening and developing those listening skills, it's hard for me at times. And so I have to work on that and paying attention to the person. But whether it's dealing with a client, a customer, an employee, a team member, whatever, applying those skills is very important. But Helping a technical person transition into a role where that they are sitting in front of the customer and they're having to carry on a conversation, they're having to listen, they're having to think about what they say. Technical people by nature typically want to show you that they have the answer and just tell you. And so for all of them, it's like teaching patience. Okay, we're going to be quiet. We're going to be patient. I had an example. We have a customer where we had a fairly significant problem. And we got called into the corporate headquarters. And so we're sitting around the table. But before we go into that meeting, I meet with my team. We met at a coffee shop just down the street from the corporate headquarters. And I said, okay, guys, let's put together a game plan. How are we going to handle this? You know, the sales guy wanting to be to show that he knows what's going on and that he wants to take control. Says, well, we're going to go in and we should do this and we should do that and we should do this and we should take this position. And the same person says, no, 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 we can't do that because of this, because of that, because of this. I let this go on for a few minutes and I said, okay, guys, how about we think about it from their perspective? What are they expecting us to do? Why are they calling us in to this corporate meeting? Because they have something they want to say to us. We have to listen. So we're going to sit there and be quiet 
until they ask for a response. We're not going to offer anything. We're not going to say anything. We're going to let them talk. And I guarantee you this, if we sit there quietly nodding our understanding or voicing our understanding and that we are hearing this, they're going to tell us something that we don't know right now. And that something may be the something to help us solve this problem. So we're just going to sit and listen. These guys are sitting on their hands. I mean, literally sitting on their hands because they're like dying to say something. And I just give them the smile. And, you know, we're like, no, we're not saying anything. <laughs> so just wait, guys, just wait. And sure enough, about 20, 25 minutes into that meeting, after they got through raking us over the coals and telling us everything that was bad about the company and everything bad about our choices and everything bad about our products, they gave us the reason that they're having the problem. And we had to be careful because we couldn't just point it out in that meeting, okay? Couldn't say, ah, now we know what the problem is. No, that's not. So thank them, we leave the meeting, and then we work through our network of people to solve the problem. Next time we go into the customer's business as usual, and you know what? They didn't bring up the issue. We didn't bring it up. Why would we? We help them resolve an issue. We're done. Well, let's move on. We retain the business. We're, we're, we are operating from a position of respect and power to that point. So getting technical people to do that, teaching them that sometimes you just have to listen. You know, working with them in our presentations here internally, you know, we constantly have technical presentations uh, amongst our teams, from the sales team to the technical team, the technical team to the sales team, and reminding them that we need to listen to one another. Did you hear what they said? You know, because so often we hear the words, but we're formulating our response at the exact same time they're talking. So we may not hear the meaning behind some of those words. I said, you got to clear your, clear your brain, clear your mind, sit there and listen, make notes, doodle if you have to. If you're one of those people that's, that's, that's like your guy, uh, strumming his fingers on the desk and, and he's fidgety. Find something to occupy those hands where that it's not obvious that you are being antsy. You know, just be calm. That but, was an amazing illustration. <laughs> I'm being patient. <laughs> like, don't cut them off. This is fantastic. Let them go. <laughs> but so many super valuable points. I truly believe that quite possibly the single biggest trait, attribute, skill, we can debate the right word later for top level listeners is patience is allowing the conversation to come to you and overcoming the impulse to jump in and become defensive or assertive or demonstrate what you know or what you're capable of, or even that you understand and that you're sorry. All of these things, like they're getting in the way of what somebody else needs to experience. And you obviously are quite aware of this, but for people that might not think the same way, if somebody calls you into their office because they have something to tell you, if you don't give them the opportunity to get that completely off their chest, they're going to focus on that for the duration of the meeting and we will get nothing accomplished. So sit there, two of us here, take it like a man, <laughs> let, let them finish what they've got to say. And then you're right. So many times there will be intelligence that we will gather that we didn't know before. Staying calm, gathering that intelligence, giving them respect. And we're in business, we're nearly always talking about iterative relationships. This isn't the last conversation Absolutely. we're ever going to have. So let's take what we learn. Let's go apply it. Do what you do best. Come up with a solution. 
presented to them in a way that they're not willing to listen because we listened first. Like the the levels of genius in that approach in the the story you told are there's significant. There's so many little things. I would have loved to have been a fly inside the heads of your team sitting there as they were chewing through both sides of their face, wanting to jump in, looking at you, knowing that if you're not talking, they can't talk. Well, you know, that's another thing as a being in a leadership position, when you go, whether it's to a client, to a supplier or anywhere else, that attention is focused to you. People are looking at you as the leader. And, you know, I try to be cognizant and aware of that and make sure that if I have brought the technical person responsible for this, that I allow them to give the answer when we are talking, when the time is right for them to respond and to give the answer. But you're right. A lot of that focus comes right to the highest ranking individual in the room, because oftentimes they're trying to get a reaction out of you. They want to see what your corporate reaction is going to be. And when you are calm and it's not that you're not having a reaction, it's that you are being respectful and you are listening to what's going on and then you respond accordingly. You know, uh, don't get me wrong. I've gotten them walked out of meeting, particular price negotiations <laughs> and said, Matt, this isn't, it. This isn't going to work. We're out of here. Um, but that's a tactic. OK, sure. as long as you know what you're doing there and it's conscious. Don't let people goad you into to being reactive to what they're saying. And I have to think about that a lot. Yeah. Because am I reacting or am I properly responding? And I don't want to be reactive in those responses. I sometimes am. I am far from perfect. I am far from perfect. But um, I like to think that I try. No doubt. And we'll keep your lack of profession a secret. I promise not to okay, spoil you. your thank reputation. You. We'll, yeah. we'll keep that between us. Don't let anybody know that. <laughs> done. Done. Um, I truly believe that often the most unsettling person is the person who can't be unsettled. So if somebody is trying to get a reaction out of you, like their whole plan is I'm going to get Fred off the rails. And then once that happens, I'm going to take advantage of it. If you're not going off the rails, they don't have a plan anymore. So now they have to cycle through what they were going to do, realize it didn't work and sit there and wonder, why are you so calm and composed? What do you know that I don't? Where is this going? What other alternatives? Like the The power, as you said earlier, that comes with being patient and being calm and letting somebody else bring the conversation to you so you can figure out how to redirect that conversation to achieve your goals. That's regardless of title, the power that that creates in any conversation. I didn't use the word earlier, but it is so significant. The, the power difference that that creates. Hey, I think you just came up with, with a new tagline, bringing the conversation. Okay. Bring it. And that's what it is. It's uh, yeah. You want to participate. Um, one of the hardest things for particularly a salesperson, but in some cases, technical people as well, is to be quiet in me, to say nothing. Yeah. You know, if there is silence, they feel like something needs to be said. And sometimes if you wait through that silence, you learn more than you would have ever learned if you had offered a response or something like that. Silence is not a bad thing. 
Oftentimes, it's a great thing. Now, sometimes, admittedly, it gets to the point where it becomes a staring contest, and this probably isn't healthy for anyone, and let's break the tension and move on. But for the most part, you're right. If we can hold that silence, and sometimes it's literally for five or six seconds. It feels like 10 minutes, but it's five or six seconds to let somebody else fill that silence and submit to the need to continue the conversation. Then we learn more. You know, you know very well that we're owned by a Japanese corporation. Yes. And uh, one of the concepts in Japanese business culture is the concept of hone, coming of one mind. You know, it's like Star Trek, the mind mail, you know, and that happens during the silent periods where that everyone's sitting around nodding. We're wrapping our, our minds around the topic, the conversation, the response, whatever it happens to be, but we're allowing people to marinate on it. And in Japanese business meetings, there are very awkward periods of silence in some of those meetings. How did that feel for you the first time you experienced that? As a rowdy, boisterous American, that was awful. I was like, I can't do this. I can't deal with this, but I have to learn through it. You know, I, I remember, and I, I uh, do a couple of presentations for Wingate University for their business school on international business etiquette and things like that. And uh, one of my first presentations at the parent company but I came out of there feeling so great. I was I was at the top of my game because the whole time I'm giving the the, the presentation, there's a lot of nodding, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, I didn't understand at the time that they weren't saying yes to everything that I was putting up there. They were simply saying, "I hear your words and I understand." That's all they were saying to me. I thought I came out of there with a yes to my proposal. No way. I came out of there with, uh, yeah, we heard what you had to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. Well, how long do I have to wait for the answer? They said, don't know. The answer comes when the answer comes. Like, oh, my gosh. How am I going to ever deal with this? But uh, it's been uh, very helpful in me developing patience having a Japanese parent company. I imagine so. One of the things that I think, stereotypically might be too strong of a word, but the the concept that we typically hear here in the United States is often in the Asian cultures, it's more important to help people save face. And it's more important to help people own the decision. And it's more important to make sure they don't feel stupid and they feel respected and that the the formalities of the conversations are followed and, and all of these things. Yet so many times those lessons are helpful in American business culture and conversations as well. They might not be like formulated, expected, this is how we do it. But the concept of helping somebody save face and not feel stupid, the concept of treating somebody how they want to be treated, respecting somebody's title or authority, even if maybe we don't, communicating with them in a way that we do so they feel the necessary value in the conversation to reach the agreement or make the decision that we are looking for. So it might not be regimented the way it is in some of those other cultures, but it's so helpful over here. You mentioned that was one lesson that has helped you really across the board. If you have them, what are a few more lessons that you've learned? Whether, and I know you've been to many countries besides Japan, you're just owned by a Japanese parent company. But right. are there other stories or examples from your international business experience that translate back and help you really across the board? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I like to think that I am a student of culture because uh, one of the most exciting things about my job is the opportunity to go to another country and to learn business etiquette, learn how they do things, you know, the Japanese culture, everything's important from how you present your business card and how you introduce yourself uh, and your company. Uh, the concept of Nimawashi, which literally means working at the roots and, and building consensus within the organization, all of those things apply, but you can learn from not just other Asian cultures, you can learn from the Spanish culture, the Muslim culture, you can learn from the Chinese culture. In each of those countries, I have learned a lot. You know, in, in China, uh, they are uh, very different from most of the rest of Asia. There are a couple of countries that are similar, but uh, the concept of drinking and alcohol after work and building that relationship prior to making the business decisions, very important to them. You know, they are eager to demonstrate their power through how, how they hold their liquor or their alcohol and things like that, um, but also how that they work together within their culture, within their company in making their decisions. You need to understand that. Usually, if it's a private enterprise, they're are one or two people who make the decision. And if you recognize that and you get to the right person, you can get a decision fairly quickly in a private enterprise. But if you're dealing with a Chinese state-owned enterprise, it's a completely different process because there are layers and layers within those organizations. And everyone must be able to, to go to their boss to get the decision. And so it goes up the chain and then it comes down the chain. And so that's the way it works in the Chinese culture. Korea is very similar. You know, we go to our uh, one of our largest customers in Korea. We go to the corporate headquarters and we meet. You know, there are different meetings. You meet with the low level people. Then you meet with the mid level people. Then you meet with the senior executive people. And that decision goes from the low level. They will not tell you anything without checking with their boss first. And that boss is going to check with his boss. And that boss is going to check with his boss, sometimes all the way to the chairman. We're dealing with some of the situations right now that are resulting in some fairly difficult business decisions for us as we look at where we manufacture some of our products. And it's being driven by one individual at the top of that organization. And it is private enterprise. But uh, even in Spanish cultures, uh, understanding uh, how to respect someone in the Latino culture is very important. Uh, how they conduct business even though it's more similar to the Western style, like what we have here in the USA, there are differences that we have to deal with. Uh, and one of the challenges for me, not being able to speak all of the languages in the countries that I go to, is we're dealing with, I have translators and agents and folks like that, is getting the proper translation. How do I know that what's being translated is exactly what the problem is for me to resolve or to help the customer. And so in those cases, you ask those questions multiple times, multiple different phrases, multiple different ways to see if you get the same answer back. Then you can feel a little more confident about the translation. So dealing with those things has been a challenge as well. 
I imagine so. I think of the interrogations that I had to conduct with the translator and had similar concerns, but those were temporary conversations. I mean, there I'm talking about an hour, two hours, maybe, and then everything's written down, double checked. Okay, we move on as opposed to developing, maintaining these relationships over time. And to be honest, these conversations have millions of dollars worth of ramifications, depending on Thank understanding you. exactly what they're looking for and, and the problem you're looking to solve. I love the examples from a customer perspective. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about leading people from a lot of these different places, having an international team, a very diverse team. What are some of the most memorable lessons that you learned, even coming up as a leader, leading and developing such a diverse team from really all corners of the globe? Oh, wow. You know, we have 126 employees here. And there are 13 different nationalities represented here. So 10% of our employees, that's over 10% of our employees, were not born in the USA. So a uh, very diverse workforce here at Goulston. Uh, understanding how to communicate with them and what's important to them, for, not just from the cultural perspective, but from the personal perspective as well, is very important. You know, it's difficult to help someone grow if you don't understand a little bit about them as an individual, but also about their culture, what's important to them in their culture. You know, the concept like we discussed earlier, saving face in the Japanese culture, and that's true of most Asian cultures, but you also find it in Muslim culture, you find it in Latino culture, you find it even in American culture, understanding to what degree that's important to them, understanding whether it's money, title, or prestige that's important because depending on their cultural background, for some folks, that title is more important than the amount of money that you're paying because that's what gives them respect within their culture. Uh, for others, it is about the money. For some, it's about uh, the family and the growth. And so understanding that. So that's, that's a hard one because you have to really get to know the individuals. And when you have a diverse team, it's not one, one size fits all. So when you're, whether it's training or whether it's uh, growth and development, uh, career conversations or what have you, you have to tailor that conversation to the individual. And listening becomes more difficult when you're dealing with that diversity. Uh, certain cultures, certain people aren't comfortable making statements in a, in a larger group. So they're going to have to be one-on-one -on -one conversations about those things. Uh, the questions that you ask, they're going to vary depending on their cultural background as well. You know, some of the questions that we would not mind being asked at all may be offensive in another culture. And so understanding that is very important. By going to these other countries and making friends, I mean, I literally consider that I have friends around the globe. I've worked with some of the same folks at some of these companies now for 10, 12, 15 years. Um, and I truly consider them friends. Um, that's the sort of respect that you have to develop even within your team and within the people that you're trying to grow as well. I love that. And again, so true in the examples that you're given. Selfishly for me, I wish that was just the standard 
that we approach conversations. How do we help people stay face? How do we get to know them or at least provide what they need as much as possible on an individual basis? Not one rule for everybody. Not everybody else mm-hmm. must conform to what I expect or what I need or what I'm right. comfortable with. Because while, yes, those are much more regimented and necessary in other cultures, really as a human being, those things are helpful. And as a leader for people to experience that from us, it helps drop the barriers. They're more comfortable being a little bit more vulnerable. We're finding out more sensitive information faster to make better decisions and solve or avoid problems. This is the impact there. Really, it's I'm using my hands here, but it, it trickles, it cascades. That's the word I was looking for. That's I think it started with a C. I just couldn't find it. It cascades down just to so many different levels. Yeah, you know, we have um, this saying here in, in Goulson that we're not building or creating many needs. We don't want you to be a carbon copy of your boss or someone else. We value the individual perspective. We value what you, your culture, your family, your background, we value what that brings to the table here. And we believe, we truly believe that we are stronger because of the diversity that we have here at Goulston. Um, And so uh, I get it. If we can help others understand that if they treat people in a certain way, regardless of their culture, their background, their history, whatever is going on in their lives, then with that respect, they're going to treat others with that same sort of respect. Those are the learnings that that we prefer here. And to me, that's obvious, even getting to know you outside of the business, that that is the culture that that you would expect within your organization. And I'm going to steal that as the perfect segue to transition initially to how we met and talk about applying a lot of these same lessons and philosophies outside of business, because hopefully a lot of the people that do listen to these conversations, they're not just applying these lessons to their work life, it's their personal life, their community life, their family, all of those things. And you and I first met volunteering within the education Mm -hmm. system here. And for me, I always have a soft spot for helping kids and education slots right into that. And if I'm going to spend my time helping the community in some way, helping make sure that students and teachers are supported and have what they need is, is really important. And I'm actually, I'm probably certain that Amy would be really upset if I didn't specifically mention the organization. So let me go back and do that. Uh, you were the board chair and I've served as the vice chair for the Union County Education Foundation. So we both live right. and work in Union County, North Carolina. And we initially met through this organization where we dedicated our time to make sure students and teachers had all the available resources and support that we could make sure they have. Because as is common, really throughout the United States, uh, public school students and teachers don't always have access to the resources, to the funding, to the things that they need in order to maximize the educational process. So my first interaction with you was community-oriented, long before it was business-oriented. And I've heard talk around town that that's not the only nonprofit organization you're on the board of or support or do work for in the background. So you're a man with uh, many philanthropic commitments here in the area. So when you look at your passion for supporting the community, how do you apply the skills, the techniques, the experiences you have running a really what is a multinational corporation to driving success through these community organizations? Well, um, community is very important to me. 
Uh, I believe that if we build a stronger community, I have a stronger family and commitment. I have stronger employees. I have a stronger company. It all works together. Um, I, I tell every director that comes to me and asks me to join a board, I ask a couple of questions. I said, you know, one of them is, are you just looking for someone to rubber stamp everything that you're doing? Uh, and if the answer to that is, is yeah, we, we feel like we're pretty good and we're just looking for folks to, to, to verify that, I'm not going to join that board. Uh, I ask, uh, what is your commitment to, to growth and improvement? And how do you intend to grow and improve? That's very important to me because if I'm going to be part of an organization, I want to make sure that they want to progress to the next level, that they're going to grow and have and that they're truly committed to their cause. Um, and then I ask them, how are you going to respond and deal with me when I ask the difficult questions? Because I'm not going to join your board and sit there and be quiet. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to challenge you. Um, and sometimes the questions I ask, you may not like them. So how are you going to deal with that? Can you deal with it? Can you have a board member who will challenge you? Because without that challenge, I don't think we're going to get the group. Okay. And that's true in business. That's true in our personal life. That's true in everything that we do. If we fail to recognize or welcome the challenge, we're not going to grow. We're, we are going to stagnate. And so for regardless of the organization, those are the questions that I ask when I join the board. Then once I'm part of that board, I want to see that everyone is involved. You know, uh, it, it, it's no secret when I first joined the Education Foundation, I made a comment that I think our board make up needs to expand. I think we need more membership and it needs to be more than, than you know, community members who are small-minded. We need folks who have vision. We want folks who have uh, uh, gravitas in the community. We want folks who uh, can actually make things happen. And um, we started as part of our strategic plan, diversifying the board of the Education Foundation, which is one of the reasons we reached out to you and thankfully you said yes. And um, we wanted folks who could help us grow and make us better. And that's exactly what's happened. Well, you can clearly see that. And well, I feel like as I, I've been here for almost 10 years now, which is crazy to stop and think about. Yeah. But in the time that I've been here, it's become easy for me to see your fingerprints on so many things that happen in the community here, business and otherwise, because of how you apply that philosophy, how you take your expectations, how other people follow those expectations, the way that you develop. I don't want to say followers, because I know that's not what you're trying to do, but you bring people yeah. to your strategic vision. You help them, help them guide them through theirs and the impact of that, how it grows. I've been able to see that. So certainly as somebody who lives and works here, I appreciate it. And I am glad to hear that. And I mean, I know you, but we have people who are joining boards, not just to put it on their resume. 
or not just to make business networking connections or not just to rubber stamp what somebody else is doing because I like that person or I trust this. So I'm just going to be the yes person that they need, but somebody who cares about the outcomes and is willing to commit and drive to those outcomes. And there's been several comments that you've made throughout this conversation, even going back to the guy that thought he had static. And here I am, like, I have static. Well, use a different dryer sheet. Like, it shows you how much I don't know about <laughs> what you do. Um, but That's even still in chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> even in that situation, talking about how important it is not just to know the chemistry, but to know the outcomes that the chemistry creates. Like that's where that link comes in. So whether we're talking about developing a high-performing business development team, you can know everything there is to know about what you do. And you can be fairly well-versed in the problems your customers have. But if you can't link what you do and what you offer to outcomes that they experience, good luck selling into that organization. If we're joining community-focused organizations, if they aren't clear on their outcomes, if we can't help them become clear on their outcomes, if we can't create a strategic path or lead a strategic path to achieve those outcomes, good luck being successful with your nonprofit and helping the people that I truly believe most nonprofits want to help. You know, They don't do that for no reason, but creating and driving that outcome-focused mindset really is so critical. Oh, I agree 100%. If uh, we can't help organizations do that, then those organizations are not going to survive. It's just like in business, they're not. And if we can't create that sort of vision within our company, we're not going to survive. We have to do that and be committed to that. Uh, I appreciate what you said. Uh, you know, community is very important to me. And I'm not doing it for recognition, I'm not doing it to build that resume. But let's build a stronger community because when the community is strong, then we have thriving businesses. We have happy uh, constituents and, and citizens. Um, that's, that's the goal. Make sure that we all have the opportunity to grow to be our best selves. Yeah, absolutely. So to begin to bring this full circle and wind up, uh, I, I know I'm infringing on your time today and I'm really grateful for you sharing it. I would love to circle back to your experience as the CEO running the organization. You shared in the beginning, you know, the experience going into the negotiation or the the upset with the upset customer sitting back and listening. What are some of the as you increased in your let me ask this in proper English, as you progressed in your leadership journey, what were some of the biggest listening challenges? that you learned to overcome as you created the philosophy that you now live and lead by today? Okay, uh, just to be clear, I'm the chief operating officer, not my fault. the CEO. The CEO is my boss, okay? <laughs> not <laughs> trying to offend your boss. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I just don't want someone to get the wrong idea that I'm more than I, I really am. So, uh, but the challenges, you know, for me, it was developing that patience. I am not a very patient person. That's the first thing I had to learn is to be patient. Um, then to act, you know, we, we hear this word too much, active listening. Okay. It's almost like a buzzword that we use. Well, you need to listen actively and ask the right questions and all this other stuff. For me, it's just making sure that you're showing respect to the person that's talking, whether it is a customer, a client, an employee, a friend in the community. 
a board member, a fellow board member from a community organization, show them the respect that you are willing to listen to what they have to say. Uh, those are the two biggest issues I have because if I allow my impatience to drive things, I'm going to make terrible decisions, okay? And so developing patience. Uh, then listening with respect, not active listening necessarily, but listening with respect. And then the perseverance, making sure that you are committed to what that you say you're going to do and that you carry that out. Uh, perseverance is a big, big issue for me and making sure that, you know, if I buy into it, I'm going to see it through the end. So those are the three main things for me that, and Developing that as from a young person that uh, came right out of school with no idea uh, where to go, what to do, how to go about things, uh, learning that on my own, those were the biggest challenges for me. Those are, thank you for sharing them. I think they're probably pretty common, especially with high performers. I want the results. I want them now. I know what I'm capable of. Everybody else should be capable for that. What's the hang up? Come on, let's go. Let's do this. We have another problem to tackle next. So there are many, many high performers that fall into that same category. And that active listening piece, I agree. Now, clearly I'm biased because the title for what I teach is disciplined listening, right? So let's take my bias into full effect here. But I, I would never talk down or try to erase active listening because it, though, doing those things, the buzzwords are important. Culturally appropriate eye contact, open posture, acknowledgement so people feel like you are listening. Those, those things are important. But how many times is it just performative? Like we're doing that because somebody told us we're supposed to do that. Yet to your point, they feel like we're paying attention, but we're not being respectful. We're talking to ourselves. We're thinking about what we want to say or where else we would rather be, or we're feeding into our expectations and biases based on what we believe we're observing, even if we're misrepresenting the intentions of the person who's communicating right. to us. So to really get beyond that act of listening, focus on the, the example you gave was perfect. There's intelligence out there that we don't have yet. So if I listen long enough, I can get that. And if I get that, now this person feels the way they want to feel. And I have what I need to solve the problem that hopefully we both want to solve at the end of the conversation. And then that perseverance as well. Number one, I think perseverance really is a great word to describe it. And I've never heard anybody use that word before because you have a million other things to do and potentially 900,000 other things that you would rather do or are more important in the moment or somebody else is counting on you for. But if somebody asks us to do something or if we give somebody our word or our commitment and then we don't follow through. For something as simple as we got stopped in the hall, asked something else, and it slipped our mind. Like it wasn't disrespectful, it wasn't intentional, but often that's how people take it. I'm not important. You don't care. You were performing, or worst case, you lied, which is so rarely actually the case in this type of situation. I wasn't lying at all. I got knocked off course. It, those are two different things. But to have the perseverance to follow it through and demonstrate the commitment especially for somebody at your level, not only solidifies you as the leader, but then sets the example for how everybody else should be listening and communicating as well. That's the goal. You know, uh, someone has asked me uh, in, in the past 
what's your legacy? I said, my legacy is that I walk out the door and this company does not miss one beat. That there are people who are trained to do the job, that the business continues, and they don't miss me. That's the biggest legacy that I can leave to this company when I leave. And that's the goal. I want to make sure everyone has that capability. And like you said, you know, there are a million things that are on our list. That's why the camera's not showing the top of my desk right now, because <laughs> I have little piles here. And if you were looking at it, you're going, oh, my gosh, what's he doing? It's, it's crazy. But prioritizing those things is very important. And that's part of perseverance. You know, if you're going to persevere through the day, you got to prioritize what's on your plate, pal. Make sure that it's uh, uh, you're focused on the things you need to be focused on. And sometimes people come to you with those issues and they are minor issues. It's not that they're not important. It's just that they fall into a different position on the task list. But you make the commitment to get to it. Mm -hmm. You still make that commitment to the individual. I'm going to take care of this. And if you make that commitment, you do it. Amen. Just last week, I was in Ohio and one of the CEOs in the group talked about how important it was for him to come to the realization that there is a ceiling to how much his staff executives management team will trust him because he's in charge. They're never going to fully trust him, no matter how bad he wants them to. Some that he has better relationships with will certainly get closer. But once he came to grips with that, not only did it take the stress off of him, not only did it help him understand their perspective a little bit more, but then he started talking about what you're talking about. He knew that he couldn't get the ceiling all the way to the top, but he could rise it incrementally over time, raise it, proper English, Mike, raise it incrementally over time by following through on some of these commitments and taking care of some of the things that, yeah, they, they weren't his priorities, but making sure that he didn't forget it, that he got back to it. So now when people see him doing these things, they understand that over time, that ceiling of trustworthiness should raise. And now he's building equity, a little bit of forgiveness if mistakes are made and things like that along the way. You know, when we promote someone, whether it's to a supervisor level or manager level, I give them a book and it's the James Maxwell book on the, the different levels of leadership and how that depending on where you are, when you meet someone, you're on level one. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what their title is. They may have respect for your position, but you're on level one. You, everyone starts at level one and you have to build that just like that CEO that you're talking about, that incremental uh, increase in whether it's trustworthiness or uh, whether it's uh, just trust in general or it's respect. You got to build that. You have to earn that. That is very true. Well, let's go out on that high note. I am so thankful. We've been together for about an hour or so now. I really appreciate wow. you sharing your time. Um, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed everything that you shared. I'm not trying to ambush you with one last question, I promise, but I would like to throw it out there. Just based on the conversation we've had today, any last thoughts or lessons that you would like to leave our listeners with based on all you've experienced? Michael, I think that uh, the only thing I will say is you have to trust yourself and you have to make sure that you persevere and get it done. If you make that commitment, stick with that commitment. And so if you trust yourself to do that, you'll be great. You will be great. I love it. I love it. Um, 
I know you are busy running your organization, but if people are looking to find out more about Goulston, I can certainly post the website and send people in that direction in case somebody might be listening in that industry and they're looking to learn more about it. Um, if somebody is looking just to stay connected with you and perhaps learn from things that you're doing or see the community resources that you are supporting, is there a way that they could connect with you to follow you? Absolutely. Uh, I don't do a lot of social media. I am on LinkedIn. Goulston has a LinkedIn webpage. You can do that. Uh, you can reach out to me through uh, the Goulston website. Uh, just send it to the, the general correspondence. My assistant, she manages all of that general correspondence and it'll get right to me and I'll connect to you. So happy to do that. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that. I, I am sure that there are some folks listening to this saying, well, I want to keep an eye on what he's doing and who he's involved with. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Again, thank you so much for your time today, Fred. It is always great to see you. I really appreciate everything that you shared with us today. Michael, thank you for what you do as well. And keep up the good work. Good to see you, buddy. You got it. We'll see you soon. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to join our show today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your experience, your insights, your story, everything you've learned along the way from a technician through sales into senior leadership, your experience growing and developing teams, especially diverse teams, working with technical experts, transitioning technical experts to sales and leadership conversations, just your story alone of going into the negotiation with an angry customer, especially overseas, and being calm enough to have a game plan of let the conversation come to you, learn what they have to share, wait for them to give you what you need, to create the alternative they're looking for while also giving them the experience of what they need to feel was genius. Thank you for sharing all of those stories and experiences with us. I truly appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who took the time to listen to our conversation today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Please do all of the things that the algorithms ask us when your schedule allows. Please like the show. Please comment on the show. Please share the show. Tell your colleagues and friends about it. We greatly appreciate you sharing the word. Of course, if you have any feedback, we want to know. What do you like? What don't you like? What would you like to see more or less of? What should we change? We're always looking to adapt and evolve the show as we go on. So thank you so much for sharing your feedback. And of course, we don't want to go anywhere without thanking our sponsors on the way out. Please, when you have the time, go to humantel.com. Explore all of their online content and resources. And when you choose to sign up for their training, enter the code in of 25 for 25% off the industry standard for learning what somebody is likely thinking and feeling as you evaluate their facial expressions and nonverbal communication for changes in their mental states and emotions. Please check that out. It is well with your time. I can personally vouch for all the training. Please also check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for all of their most updated content catalog that they have available. Webinars, podcast episodes, articles, interviews, books, the list goes on. Please check them out for everything you'd want to know and learn about emotional intelligence. And of course, for the professional interviewers, please take the time and visit our friends at the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. Check out their content, check out their networking, check out their resources for interviewers, find events that might be worth attending for you, and also dive into the certified forensic interviewer designation. Do you qualify? What's the process for obtaining it? Is it something that's right for you at this juncture in your career? Certified for an, certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers.
So thank you to all our sponsors. Fred, thank you so much for, again for joining us and sharing all of those stories. And of course, to everybody who listened, thank you so very much for joining us and taking the time today. We truly appreciate it. Stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.